I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. We're waking up this uh, Monday morning to two bank failures in three days. If you just heard about the one in Silicon Valley, uh, that one is definitely having direct impact here in the state of Utah. We're going to get into those details in just a moment. If you're thinking a second bank, yeah, the second bank was in New York. It's Signature Bank. It was also uh, shut down by the feds this weekend. I think the question a lot of us are asking is, is it going to stop there? Is it just these two banks or are other banks going to follow? What did they do that was so bad that that it just blew up over the weekend? It's 9.07. It's time for the launch. Sequence engaged. And here are three things that Debbie wants you to know. Countdown three. Besides our in-depth coverage over the bank failures this morning, we're also uh, diving into the 20-year anniversary of finding Elizabeth Smart alive after nine months of being kidnapped and raped. Uh, the arrest of her captor, I, I want to make this clear, Dave, because we so much we celebrate her return, yeah. right? But this is really just the beginning of, of this man's prosecution. So we're going to take you inside the interrogation room with the FBI special agent who was there. Can you tell me the truth? How did Elizabeth wind up with you? Tell me the truth right now. By the power of God, she was delivered to us. And how did God deliver her to you? It was chilling to watch this interview right the interrogation i i had heard bits and pieces but it, it is we we focus so much on elizabeth we forget how investigators and, and interrogators really broke things down uh, of her kidnapper the fbi agent will join us we'll also have some tips on how to teach our own kids to stay safe countdown Oh, like I said, we begin this work week with a surprise disaster in the banking industry, the failure of that bank in California. The fallout felt right here in Utah. So we're going to discuss the local industries that are impacted by this run on the Silicon Valley Bank, specifically on Utah's tech sector and, believe it or not, for DIYers. We're going to get into that angle in just a bit. Also, I'm looking forward to this deep dive at 9.50 in what it means to be FDIC or NCUA insured. What does that cover exactly? I mean, do I have to be rich just for it to kick in? Uh, It's a great question because oftentimes when you see the banking commercials, they'll say FDIC insured and you feel great about it. I I realized I, I don't know exactly what that means. And is there a cap? Like, will they only cover up to a certain amount? Or, like I said, you have to be rich. <laughs> yeah, like billions, up to billions. I don't know. Launch countdown. 
One. We're waiting for a really important meeting to happen on this topic any moment now. I just got word from a producer. It hasn't started yet. It's the governor of Utah along with uh, several legislative leaders um, meeting. Uh, we're going to actually, we've got a link to it. We're going to take you there live as fears of contagion spread over more bank collapses. We know that two fell this weekend. The one that's our focus for the governor, as well as the president of the United States, is the SVB Bank in Silicon Valley. Um, I think President Biden's Monday morning, it was a very brief address this morning. I think this move uh, could stave off pure panic in the banking industry and for customers. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. And the president and the Fed, everyone's doing some pretty impressive contortionist uh, impressions to try to say this is not a bailout, though. Though it is a bailout. It's it's a partial bailout or a baby bailout. At least that's what a BYU economist believes. He says, sure, this might be a short-term solution, but it may bring long-term problems. Uh, he's essentially telling the markets that there's no cap on how much money the, the government's going to insure. Dave and Dujanovic. The launch. Commence. Dave and Dujanovic. Special coverage of the top national story. It, that did spread like wildfire this weekend. Fears uh, that more banks could collapse. And, and sure enough, in New York, a bank was seized this weekend. Different issues at hand. Kind of the same outcome. Right now, our governor, uh, both uh, our senators, Senator Mike Lee and Senator Mitt Romney, legislative leadership here in Utah, banking leaders holding a town hall. We thought it would be started by now. They said it was a 9 o'clock start time. Um, it, they're just running a little bit b- behind. But the moment it starts, Dave, we're going to take our listeners there to dip in live. I'm very interested in hearing uh, what their concerns are, uh, if they have some words of re- reassurance for Utah, because sometimes we talk about banks, banks on the coast. How much does this affect us? That's the the million dollar question right now. As we're waiting for that to start live, I want to rewind. I want to rewind on what happened over the weekend. It really started late last week. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank failed, and this is, as we've reported multiple times, the biggest bank to fail since the '08 financial crisis. It's important to note that this is a specialty-type bank. It specializes in the tech sector, um, specifically like venture capitalists, people looking – small businesses, a lot of startups turn to SVB to launch their businesses. Um, So they took those deposits. Like you put money in the bank, they took those deposits, and then they turned around and invested heavily in treasury bonds. And that's where things – Take a turn. Which is very surprising because conventional wisdom tells you, you know, put it in bonds. Safe. It's the safest Safe. place to yeah. put your money, right? So if a, a bank invests that way, th- that's not just speculating. You know, that's not something that is wild or crazy. So the idea that it's this very investment strategy that came back to bite them was shocking. Didn't your mama ever tell you don't put all your eggs in one basket, David? Yeah. Okay, that's part of the problem. Yeah. When you put them all in the treasury bond or most of them in the treasury bond basket, it's a it's it's 
it was great, right? You're right. It's safe until the Fed started raising interest rates. And those low-yield bonds that were paying 1% and 2% look pretty dang ugly compared to the new bonds that were out there, those shiny new bonds that are paying much more in a return. Which is not a big deal if it's your grandma's $100 treasury bond she gave you, you know, that you're going to sit on for 30 years. But when you're talking about tens of billions of dollars and you're missing out on several percentage points on return, you can see where, where people would be like, all right, I'm done with this bank. This bank, I'm just taking my money out. Well, let me pull another egg out of the basket. The tech sector started to wobble a lot. Yeah. And there were a lot of layoffs you and I didn't talk about because there got to be so many different layoffs across the industry as cuts started to happen. And so now, you know, a lot of those people, maybe they want their money out of the bank. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of money who want their, there are a lot of people who want their money all at once. And it's all tied up in treasury bonds that are the kind of the ugly duckling treasury bonds of the group. So you're, as as the as SVB as it went, things got worse for them. They yeah. were stuck. They were stuck with these bonds that they can't really sell right away. They had a liquidity problem. Yeah, or they're taking huge losses on them. So President Biden spoke first thing this morning. We were we were listening into that. It was short. It was brief. But he's trying to calm industry fears, uh, bank customer fears that this will happen. This will happen to other banks. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. We'll continue following this all morning long. Uh, It looks like it's Silicon Slopes. They're having this town hall with the governor, with her senators, state leadership, banking leaders. Uh, as, as soon as we get that uh, online, we're going to bring that to you uh, because I think it's important to, to know what happens here in Utah. How does this impact us? Straight ahead, we're going to speak to a BYU economist. Um, you know, the FDIC typically covers up to $250,000, right? But you look at this bank, SVB. Like they had billions and billions of dollars over the insured amount. So, what ha- is that normal for the feds to just turn around and bail out, even though you have more than $250,000 in there? And where's that coming from? Is that coming from taxpayers? We're going to ask. Dave and Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. KSL News Radio reporter Adam Small in the newsroom uh, monitoring. That live discussion between both Utah's senators, Mitt Romney and Mike Lee, the governors on on that link as well. They're all talking about this SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, failure over the weekend. As soon as we get word that we have access to that link, um, there's a big meeting going on right now. It's uh, public. We're going to dip into that. But this definitely sent shockwaves. Through the banking industry. Look, you don't have to be in the banking industry to be nervous. I was worried about what would happen come Monday when the banks reopened. So far, I think we're okay. We hope. Yeah. And and this is what happens is government comes in. They try to settle everybody down. That's exactly what President Biden did this morning. That's why he joined or did a public address first thing in the morning. He's trying to settle everybody down. 
okay, what are the ramifications of the government stepping in and securing these loans and the deposits? What does that mean long term? Yeah, he talked about investors um, will not be made whole who were investors in the bank. But if you were a depositor, in other words, you have a bank account at this bank, $250,000, usually the threshold, if we all see it, right? FDIC, NCUA, if you bank at a credit union, he said, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to make you all whole. Investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk. And when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. Joining us right now is professor of economics at BYU, Mark Showalter. Hey, thanks for joining us. Be on. Hey, President Biden said uh, very clearly, very clearly, depositors don't need to worry. They'll have access to their funds. It sounds like great news if I've put money into these banks. What's the downside of guaranteeing all of these deposits? Instructors at this point, it's almost as if there is now this blanket uh, insurance for deposits, regardless of size. Um, currently, as you know, it's a two hundred fifty thousand dollars cap. So if you lose, if you have an account that's bigger than that, then you're not insured. You don't get your money. There's no guarantee for anything above that two hundred fifty. But uh, for these two banks, they've essentially said it doesn't matter. Uh, everything gets uh, everything's insured. You can get your money out. Um, there's a legal question. Can they actually do that? So, um, and then if it's just these two banks, then um, there's a question of why are they so special? Um, but if you're going to do something that essentially gives a guarantee to all funds, then that becomes a question of whether that's legal and can be actually done. And you're going to have to figure out a way to pay for it. So right now, those that $250,000 limit is paid for by a levy on all bank deposits. But that levy is enough to fund risks up to $250,000. If you're going to fund all deposits, that levy is going to have to be a lot higher. Uh, And so that's going to be a cost that um, I don't know how much it is, but somebody's going to have to figure that out. And, you know, that's going to – it's not like a tax – directly, but it's going to be a fee that's going to come out in what banks uh, are going to be able to give out as far as rates or charges, uh, depositing rates. Uh, Mark Showalter is a BYU professor of economics. You're much brighter than I am um, when it comes to the economy professor and banking. Uh, You guys have been doing a great job. Okay. But, but, well, I've been doing a lot of reading uh, on this and, and I, I think that $250,000 limit, it's, it's almost like ridiculous these days, given the amount of funds that a business needs to work with in order to even make payroll, for example, or or be able to have access to funds. I mean, so many businesses, there's no way they could operate with $250,000 in the bank just on payroll alone. I wondered if that cap is just, it was set years ago and it just stayed low and it just doesn't make sense with today's times. Well, the cap was meant to insure individuals. It wasn't meant to uh, be a backstop for businesses, even even small businesses. Uh, 
Uh, now, there are workarounds. So there are business models out there that will essentially aggregate loans across a whole bunch of different banks. And so as a small business over, uh, owner with maybe a, a $5 million a month payroll or something like that, uh, you can uh, engage one of these firms that will split up your banking needs across a bunch of different banks. And so every bank has your deposits in any given bank is below that cap. And so you're insured for much more than that $250,000, but it costs somebody to do that accounting for you. Uh, and so there's ways to do that as a small business. But you know, when you get to be large, then even that becomes uh, prohibitively expensive. Um, but that's not what that $250,000 cap was meant to do. That was meant to kind of ensure those small investors uh, and, and you know, individuals, not, not firms. Yeah. If banks understand that the government's going to come in and guarantee any of these losses or their deposits, does this make the banks almost feel – uh, superhuman, where, where they can take maybe unnecessary risks, take a chance because they know there's a backstop? Well, if you're FDB management, that's not what you're thinking right now. If you just lost your job. Um, and so the way this is being structured is the management, the people who are making those decisions to buy long-term assets with higher yields but then uh, are hit by rising interest rates. Those people in those situations, their incentives are still in line to make smarter management decisions because these guys got fired. What it creates is a problem for small business owners. Instead of being careful about the management of their funds for their payroll, they're not being as careful about it. Uh, and you can run into these kind of problems right now. So that's why you're seeing kind of anything less than kind of the very top tier banks. So I was looking at Zion, the bank corp. They're down 20% today. And anybody who's kind of um, lower tier, there's this question of, do you have enough financial stability? Is your management good enough to manage this? Uh, and so that's, that's going to be a question for regional banks like SVB and First Republic is also now under significant pressure. Uh, Mark Walter is a BYU professor of economics. I asked him to jump on the line with us, grateful for his time this morning after the collapse of two banks kind of two banks in three days, uh, contagion, talk contagion. Uh, what's your concern that this is? these are the first two dominoes to fall, Professor? Well, with this, um, with this backstop on all funds are guaranteed, regardless of how much, that's going to limit the amount of immediate uh, pressure to withdraw from banks. But you're going to see this movement to larger banks until things get stabilized a little bit. Because most, you know, if you're a small business, you know, you're not checking into the management style of your local bank. You're just hoping they're going to keep working. But now uh, you're going to have a lot more confidence in a large bank um, that has, frankly, more federal regulatory oversight than, than an SBB or things like that. And so there's going to be some volatility as, as this stuff gets sorted out. Um, but I think the actions taken to this point will probably lim limit the damage. You know, so I don't, there's a couple of banks right now kind of on the margin, uh, based on what I can see, uh, but it's not going to lead to a wholesale meltdown of the financial system. Mark Showalter, thank you for joining us, BYU professor of economics. So Utah, certainly, uh, we have our share of DIYers. Uh, a lot, a lot of folks who DIY projects turn around and sell stuff online, uh, and then I read that, like Etsy, 
Like Etsy. Okay. That they got stung by the SVB bank collapse. David Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. If you caught it over the weekend, then you know there was a run on a bank in Silicon Valley, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. This wasn't just a bank that stood up a couple of years ago. It's been around for 40 years. Heavy, heavy, heavy in the tech sector uh, with depositors. So they specialize, Dave. And, And if you're a DIYer, you make stuff and you sell it online, like on Etsy. Okay. Have you ever done that? Never never done the Etsy thing. There's a good chance you may be impacted by this SVB collapse. If you are a Utah who's a DIYer who happens to sell stuff on Etsy. We're going to get into that in just a moment. I wonder how much uh, of this collapse happened because of social media. Part of you know the problem when you have a run on the banks, a quote-unquote run on the banks, is... Everybody is panicking at the exact same time. That is the very definition of social media, right, is everything happens at the exact same time. So if you start hearing rumblings and panickings and it starts spreading through Twitter, what, you know, how much of that contributed to these banks collapse? We asked Robert Spenlove this morning, uh, Amanda Dixon did, on Utah's Morning News, uh, and Robert Spenlove is is with Zion's Bank, uh, and asked him about the role that social media played in this collapse. How much do you blame management, and how much do you blame social media for what happened here? Yeah, I think a big part of it is social media, and that in the Twitter world, things can get out of control pretty quickly. I think there, you know, we we don't know exactly what happened with SBP and Signature Bank. Uh, I think there probably was some uh, management struggles or some management errors. Uh, but, you know, in, in this era of very quick, uh, uh, you know, r- running around on Twitter and things like that, we need to make sure that we keep a, a clear head. President Biden fired everybody at Silicon Valley Bank, mm-hmm. right? He said FDIC has taken that over. He fired everybody. So trying to blame it on mismanagement, right? But what was the mismanagement? They took all of those deposits, all that money, and they invested them in what is largely considered the safest possible investment, mm-hmm. treasury bonds. And then treasury bonds kind of tanked. Yeah, I think they took their eye off the ball. That's what I think happened. I, I, I think because a, a lot of people, when you deposit your money in a bank, do you know what they do with it from there? No. Honestly. Nobody, no, the point it, is this, nobody, that, yeah. do, nobody knows. Yeah. You leave that... Up to the bank. Well, you know they don't keep it in there to make really sound investments. And treasury bonds are sound, but when you're buying a treasury bond in 2000, 2001 at one percent or two percent, and by 2023 they're paying five percent, nobody's going to buy your nobody's going to buy your bonds that you're holding. And they held billions and billions of dollars in bonds, as I said earlier. They put so many eggs in one basket. And then when the tech sector started to wobble, which we've seen a lot of layoffs this year, we know there's been a lot of struggles in the tech sector. Everybody's going back to work now, not as many online meetings and such. For example, that's just one aspect of the tech sector that we've seen kind of struggle now that people are getting back to the office. The tech sector starts to wobble 
And then people want money out of the bank, and the money is all tied up in these bonds that are really not worth much on the market, right? You have to have customers who want to buy your product. And if you have bonds that are paying 1% interest, and I can buy a bond that pays 5% interest, where am I going to buy that bond from? Not SVB. Yeah. But that part of that is the Fed's fault, right? Like, who saw this coming? And in the last year, these massive changes the the Fed has made in jacking up interest rates, I, I don't know how much of that is mismanagement and how much should yeah. fall on the Fed. The Verge, uh, many many news outlets are reporting this. The Verge is the one I turn to um, talking about Etsy specifically. Some sellers not receiving their payments on time. So if you rely, if you're a DIYer, you, you know, you turn to Etsy to sell your stuff. You might not get your payment. Um, but the good news is, is that the company is trying to use other forms of payments right now or other payment partners. And they were hopeful that some of the sellers that were, you know, out their money over the weekend will start seeing payments as of today. And I think with President Biden making the announcement today, this morning, that um, depositors will be made whole. As of today, you will have access to your funds if you bank with SVB. I hope that those who are the DIYers in Utah and beyond will start getting, seeing their money show up. Because if you're relying on that to feed your family and to make your mortgage payment or to pay your employees, and it's tied up because the, there was a run on the bank and the bank failed, yeah, that would hurt. Right. I so how many how many days did these small businesses just sit in limbo yeah. and panic and think how how am I going to pay for all this? Yeah, one of one of them, um, a CNN, an owner of a small tech company, was on CNN this weekend, and she said she started to get word la- last week, and then went to withdraw money. Well, we were incredibly lucky to have that news early from an investor. Um, we didn't withdraw the money immediately. You know, we're conscientious business owners. We spoke to a few other investors. We spoke to friends. I mean, this is like calls going off the hook for the last 36 hours. When we felt confident that this was going to be a crisis, we withdrew the money through transfers and wires as soon as possible. I mean, she was withdrawing small amounts, big amounts, just to not set off an AI that might limit our withdrawals. My co-founder, Audrey, and I constantly think about two things. We think about our team, the people we employ and their families, and we think about our patients the mothers, the new moms, and the families that we support and their families. And so for us, it was do this now or else. And they ended up making enough withdrawals that they got their main account at SVB below the $250,000 threshold for FDIC insurance to kick in. But they were like finagling all last week trying to get the money out. And that is that is an example of what a bank run looks like. That's exactly. just one person. Well, and, and you heard her say, we got word. We got word. And then it started spreading, and it spread through social media. You could see posts all over the place. And as soon as there is this sense that there is a run, you don't care about the wellness of the bank. All you care about is mm-hmm. your bank account specifically, and you will drain that thing in a heartbeat if you can. I have a lot of questions this weekend um, about FDIC and also the insurance that you have if you bank at a credit union and CUA. I see those signs all over the bank. 
and it says $250,000 that you're insured up to. President Biden said today, like, it's unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, they're going to cover, and I don't know who's going to cover that exactly, if that's going to be taxpayers or that's going to be the FDIC uh, insurance fund. That covers the the amount above $250,000. He claims it's all FDIC money. I'll give you an example. SVB Bank alone was holding on to $175 billion in deposits. I say holding on. They weren't. They had $175 billion in deposits. $148 billion of that was uninsured. So 85% of that bank's funds were uninsured. So let's dive into what FDIC insurance covers, um, how quickly you normally get your money if a bank fails, and what questions do you have uh, about FDIC insurance? Like, is it just like one account that it covers or multiple? Or Yeah, all of those questions. But I, I was also fascinated as we were talking to our, our BYU economist, he said it wasn't meant to be for small businesses mm. or large businesses. That's a good one. That's a good question. Like, where do you so bank? So, who's covered? If you're a small business or a large business, is there any insurance, or are you just rolling the dice? Details. Genevieve, special coverage of the top national story. We're starting this work week with a crash course in FDIC insurance. Like, what does it cover? What won't it cover? Because of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank collapsing. Dave, they had $175 billion in deposits, $148 billion of that not insured. Over the over the limit, that $250,000 limit. President Biden uh, speaking today on the issue, assuring banking customers, whatever you had in that SVB bank or signature bank, which also failed in, in New York, um, everything's covered. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. I guess the question I have, Debbie, is how much of a role should the government have Mm. in backing this money, right? The money that's deposited into banks. Because everybody knows as soon as you put that money in the bank, the bank invests it. Sometimes they invest it in bonds. Sometimes they do it in stocks. They have a, a, a million different ways they can invest that money. What they do not do, which I think was kind of the original plan for the bank, which is hold this huge sum of cash until I want it back. Right? But that's not what the modern bank does now. They don't just lock it in a big vault and hold it for you securely. No. They take that money immediately and they invest it. Who hasn't seen the placard when you walk in the bank, FDIC, or you walk in your credit union, NCUA insured? You know, yeah. gives you confidence. Uh, $250,000 cap on that insurance, but apparently uh, the president blowing that cap out of the water this morning. Shane Stewart, uh, DMBA certified financial planner. Good morning. Good morning. So so let's start with the basics at FDIC 101. Uh, what does that insurance cover? Uh, FDIC insurance covers up to $250,000 per depositor, per account uh, or organization. And so, for example, if I have an account, it's, a, it's 
insured up to 250000 If it's a joint account with my wife, it would be insured up to 500000 because it's per depositor. What if I jump around to different banks? Does that follow me, or is it just like two hundred and fifty per name? It, it it absolutely does follow you, and you could actually have, and that's actually one of the strategies if you want to really make sure you're covered. Is if you have more than two hundred fifty thousand, you could put it in different institutions under the same name, but different institutions, and then it's covered for two hundred and fifty thousand per account because it's a different institutions. Shane Stewart live on the line with us. He's a certified financial planner with Desert Mutual Benefit Administrators. Uh, we're talking to him because of the collapse of, of SVB. Um, and I heard this morning, Shane, there's a, a possible third bank feeling some pressure this morning. Signature Bank also seized by the feds uh, over the weekend. They're out of New York. And I'm looking right. at the FDIC's website right now, and it says it specifically covers checking accounts, um, savings accounts, money markets, time deposits like certificates of deposits, CDs, um, cashiers' checks, money orders, other official items issued by the bank. So I suppose if you walked in the bank and you got a $1,000 cashier's check and then the feds came in right behind you and, and, and closed the doors and shuttered the windows, that cashier's check would be honored. Um, but it doesn't cover uh, – it does not cover things like mutual funds, crypto – I mean, I, I don't have any crypto, but um, right. bond investments, life insurance policies. So I guess it's I guess it's a, a good thing to know a little bit more about this than what I knew uh, until this bank collapse this weekend. Yeah, absolutely, it's giving us an education, and in fact, to the, to your point about uh, depository types accounts, CDs, money markets, uh, savings, that kind of thing. That's what. FDIC and NUCA would protect. There is some protection for other types of accounts, security, stocks, bonds, that kind of thing. It's called SIPC, and that's uh, protected up to 500000 uh, also with a 250000 limit for cash. So there are insurances out there, but all of these insurances, keep in mind, are simply there in case your bank goes under. It's pretty rare for a bank to go under. That's why this is a such an interesting story, because the... Uh, of these two banks having a little bit of trouble, really, if you're with a if you're with a reputable bank and they have FDIC or N- NCUA insured, you probably don't have too much of a problem. The only problem we have right now is, and I guess I'll I'll, I'll channel my inner FDR. The only thing we have to fear is the fear of, of yeah. losing your money, and that can cause people to do crazy things. Shane, when I look at a bank, you know, we used to take our our huge piles of cash and bury it in the backyard or under the mattress, but we didn't want to hold that much money. So we started putting them in a, in the bank. Now the bank doesn't just hold our money. They immediately invest it and they've turned into investors. And there there's a pressure, I think, to have a good return on investment, right? Whether it's stocks, mm-hmm. bonds, whatever it might be. I, I guess I wonder why don't they play by the same rules as every other investor out there that will take your money and like a mutual fund or a 401k, something like that. That's a good point. And in fact, they're, they're probably going to be some fallout from this in the, to the tune of some things that you're just mentioning, Dave, like some regulations on, there are some uh, what they call depository requirements. They have to have so much money on hand to make good. If you did come in and want your money, but they might need to look at those and make those higher 
or reevaluate. The problem that Silicon Valley had is exactly what you said. They made some some pretty big bets on, so to speak, on treasury bonds. And when the interest rates went up, they had to start selling those at a loss. And that's when it started the domino effect of selling at a loss, not having enough to pay their, their depositors. Shano, I want to make it clear, though, this FDIC insurance or NCUA, if you bank at a credit union, it doesn't cover mm-hmm. things like what most of us will probably be impacted by, sadly, identity theft. So if somebody accesses my account and they they get five you know five thousand dollars out of it or, or something like that, FDIC insurance doesn't kick in, but identity theft insurance might help you out with that, right? That's correct. Yeah, this is FDIC and NCUA are simply for the solvency of the credit union or the bank. Uh, otherwise, banks and most banks or credit unions have a little bit of leeway there. If you're defrauded, that they can help you out and help you go get it. But you're right; it does not protect against that kind of uh, foul play. Shane Stewart, thank you for joining us, DMBA Certified Financial Planner. Takeaways from the last hour of coverage. We're not done yet. We're going to continue this uh, story and at, at ten thirty and eleven o'clock. I think the future of banks. There's a big question mark. I think we're looking at it, and um, there's a clear delineation in my mind, the role my bank plays and the role my E-Trade account plays or my 401k. And when they're all playing in the same pond Mm -hmm. or the same swimming pool, I get a little confused about who's who's doing what. Are you you just providing – the role that I expect you to, mm-hmm. or are you just swimming in totally different places? Yeah. I My takeaway this weekend um, was I, I don't have any idea how my banking institution invests None. all of its deposits. None. I'm clueless. None. I'm totally in the dark. Uh, this one, this one, this bank lapse pretty much came out of the blue. Because when we left here on Thursday, that bank was still standing. Yeah. And by Friday... It had been seized by the feds because there had been a run on billions of dollars. And the thing is shut down, and all of a sudden the president's up this morning speaking about it. And until today, if your bank had told you, hey, we're, we're heavily invested in bonds, you would have thought, oh, that's, that's very safe. Elizabeth Smart found special coverage with David DeGenovic on KSL News Radio. Then you tell me the truth. How did Elizabeth wind up with you? Tell me the truth right now. By the power of God, she was delivered to us. And how did God deliver her to you? We are marking 20 years of Elizabeth Smart's return to her family after being kidnapped for nine months. But we are also focused as well on the investigation into her captor, Brian David Mitchell, and his wife, Wanda Barzee. We know that after she was found, that was just beginning, right? I mean, that just began the process, immediately taken into a police interrogation room where, we'll call it an interview room, where he told FBI, uh, an FBI agent and a police detective that God God had delivered Elizabeth to him. And we're going to take you inside that interrogation room in just a moment with Special Agent Jeff Ross, who's in studio with us. Here's a taste of what's to come. Could you be willing to explain that to her family? I mean, do you want us to walk out of here and tell Elizabeth's parents, who have gone through absolute hell since June 5th, and tell them that, you know, God 
God delivered your daughter Elizabeth. Your beautiful. I'll tell you, as I was listening through this, Debbie, I was so frustrated, and I, I can imagine that that's just a taste of what investigators uh, were going through. So frustrating to not get a straight answer, and I, I, I don't know, especially with all the pent up, you know having gone through such an emotional case. It wasn't just his name that he refused to admit to. He called himself Emmanuel David Isaiah during that interview, claimed he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And in this bizarre two-hour interview, probably went even longer, that was the length of the video, claimed Elizabeth Smart was 18 when she was really 14 when he took her at knife point. Can you tell me the truth? How did Elizabeth wind up with you? Tell me the truth right now. By the power of God, she was delivered to us. And how did God deliver her to you? By the power of God. How did God get you into the house? How did God get you into the house? By the power of God, she was delivered to us. Jeff Ross, FBI Special Agent with the Salt Lake City Division. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Um, I listened to this, and I, I'm, I, I would imagine you were so supremely frustrated. I mean, this is probably normal, right? This is probably a Tuesday for you that that you people won't answer your questions or they speak certain. What was what was it like? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's a normal Tuesday for me because it's not often that someone claims to be a prophet of God that I'm talking to, okay. even. Uh, I would say walking into that interview right off the bat, the first thing um, that I noticed was uh, he was sitting with his, I call it Jesus hands. His hands were up like this. He was sitting in a chair. Each side of his head. Yeah, right. Like you see, you know, when... Somebody's preaching. Exactly. And um, <clears throat> he seemed to be pretty comfortable. There was a table in between where uh, he was sitting and where we were sitting. And right off the bat, I felt uncomfortable because I don't like to interview people like that. And uh, I'd also, prior to being in law enforcement, I'd worked in a mental hospital where people would come in and sometimes would be faking symptoms to avoid something. And within minutes of interacting with this guy, I thought it was a charade. And I'm like, this guy is just he's, – he's manipulating the situation for as much as he can. I certainly don't believe that he really thinks he's a prophet or that he, he's just using this. And so – He'd said things like he was a servant of the Lord, that Elizabeth – God had delivered Elizabeth to him. And I can see – I'm watching also your body language and the detective's body language. And I could tell that you were, you were just wanting to him to admit – like, look, I, t- I took her at, at knife point. I kept her for nine months. I did horrible things to her. Yet he never, he never seemed to admit. There was a point, I think, where Corden Park's detective with Salt Lake uh, had gotten to a point with him in the questioning where Brian, I'm not going to call him Emmanuel David Isaiah, but Brian David Mitchell was about to almost – break from and make some statements and you just saw him just like get really quiet and not answer the question. But at some point during the interview, I'd say about 45 minutes in, I just got up and walked around the table and sat right next to him. And I was so close to him at points where I was talking to him where I could see the hair on his beard moving from my breath talking to him. And uh, I think the tone of the interview changed after that because he was 
and and Corden's actually lean over, leaning over the table into his in, into his personal space as well. And uh, no matter what we tried to do, two things didn't happen. He didn't he didn't break and you know become physically aggressive. He didn't end the interview. He didn't break down and start crying. Uh, he didn't make any admissions beyond that God had delivered Elizabeth to him and provided for them while they traveled throughout the land. Um, and <clears throat> that that was the way that the interview stood. And initially, when Brian was charged in state court, this uh, you know Brian was found to be incompetent uh, to stand trial and was sent down to a mental hospital until he could be restored to competency. And while that was going on, uh, a federal indictment was obtained charging Brian and um, with kidnapping and, and, and sexual and all the sexual assaults and all that other stuff. Um, and they had a, they had a, a hearing on competency in federal court. And one of the things that uh, I think I'm proudest of in regards to that interview is uh, they use that interview to show on Brian's part, he was incredibly controlled. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was manipulating the entire situation because if you were truly mentally ill and 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 uh, and incompetent to stand trial, he would have lost it during that interview and 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 just kind of went off the rails. But he didn't. He just held to that same line, and they used that to show that this was all you know. Find him competent, and eventually put him on trial and send him to prison for the rest of his life. That's really interesting because I I was trying to think was there a positive. They came out of that interview because he was admitting to nothing. He was speaking in such generalities. But as you said, because he was so controlled. I wouldn't say that he he admitted nothing. If he admitted nothing, he would say, I don't know who Elizabeth yeah, Smart is. Instead, true. what he said is God provided her to him. Okay, we know that's not going to be what happened. And then, and then provided for them while they traveled throughout the land, which is also an admission. you know. And that, that they were – I think he said they were sealed in marriage. And that, and that, uh, and he had and named him, and, her. He had given her a yeah, new sure, name. Yeah, sure. Jayship Esther Isaiah or whatever it was. Yeah. So what you're saying is that he admitted that he was traveling with Elizabeth Smart that entire time, um, and and that's a big get during that interview. Sure. Right. Yes. It, because even in a strange way, the way, the phrasing, even though it's peculiar, it's not something we're used to hearing or, but. Again, just in kind of the roundabout way, you're right. He did. He admitted to all of this. Yeah. I Much mean, of it. Yeah. Up, to a, up to a certain <laughs> exactly, point. Exactly, yes. Um, and again, he was eventually indicted federally, and I was grateful to see that happen. Um, I sat in court during part of that. I believe it was her deposition, and I'm trying to remember that exact time, but I think he was singing in another room yes. the entire time. Do you remember that, Jeff? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't in the courtroom for much of it, I think. Uh, yeah, he spent a lot of time singing. He did uh, that during the interview as well. Yeah, and he got silent on you. And I and I, I really, you toward the, I think it was toward the end of the interview, and we're, we're going to take a break in just a moment because we're going to pick your brain about how to keep kids safe because you, you do a lot of that for the FBI. You keep kids safe. Um, you asked, you asked, um, Brian David Mitchell, this question. Why'd you come back to Salt Lake City? Why'd you come back? I was just answering that, Brian. Why'd you come back to Salt Lake? And this had to be the hottest place of all places to come to. Everyone knows Elizabeth's face. It's still posted on every single storefront that I've ever been into since June 5th. 
my understanding, uh, Agent Ross, was that um, Elizabeth had a hand in that, that she had some hand in that in San Diego when they had gone there for the winter. She knew that this was going to be the one place that there was hope that she would be found alive. But thank goodness they came back to Salt Lake City because they'd just gotten here and they were spotted walking down State Street in Sandy by the mall. Correct. Yes. And uh, I didn't believe it when I was told that she was found. I I, I was called by our uh, secretary. I was out working a bank robbery um, and I got a call saying they found Elizabeth and I was expecting that they had found her remains somewhere. And it wasn't until I pulled off the highway to go to the Salt Lake City Police Department and I pulled off the highway next to Corden Parks and I saw him in the car and he had Ed Smart and all I saw was Ed Smart had like this little blonde head and a headlock and he was crying and I'm like – I still didn't believe it. It wasn't until I walked into the parking lot of the Salt Lake City Police Department. She stepped out of the car and you could have heard a pin drop because cops were starting to arrive because now's the time to follow up on leads and interviews and all that other stuff and collect evidence and – I was in shock. I wouldn't have believed it. Did you know you were going to be the one to sit down and interview Brian David Mitchell right away? No, I did not. No, I did not. I didn't. I didn't find that out until uh, I walked upstairs and the our ASAC was up there and he said, "Jeff, you're interviewing Brian. You know what you need to do, right?" I'm like, "Yes, sir." So, you know what you need to do. How did God get you into yes. the house? How did God get you into the house? By the power of God, she was delivered to us. More with Special Agent Jeff Ross. The Smart Found. Special coverage with David DeGenovic on KSL News Radio. We're speaking live right now to FBI Special Agent Jeff Ross, who's with the Salt Lake City Division. And it was 20 years ago that he was sitting in an interview room uh, right across the table from Brian David Mitchell, who um, we now know is serving a life sentence, uh, checked. Last week, he's still in. He's serving in Indiana, and he will be there uh, for of her going missing until sometime in August. That was seven days a week, sixteen to twenty hours a day, for me and a lot of the other detectives that were on that task force. And it was just never-ending, high-stress environment. A lot of work, following up on leads, and then we have this guy, and. Uh, and personally, I was like, this is the dude who ruined my summer. <laughs> I mean, he did a lot worse yeah. to a lot of other people. But you had, you had, you were personally invested. You were invested. Yeah, it was, it was like, there was a six week period of time where I only saw my wife while she was sleeping. And, uh, I mean, occasionally she'd wake up when I was leaving, but what I, it was, it was probably the busiest I've ever been in 24 years of law enforcement because it was it was so important to find her. You ask him his name or the detective, Detective Parks, asked, um, and he says it's Emmanuel David Isaiah, and then ask for his address. He said, my home is heaven. And I <laughs> know. Yeah, you're it, you're telling me this stuff 20 years later, and I haven't listened to this in forever. So, yeah, but that's, that's right. You must have just been – Thinking, and that's right off the bat from the very first moments of this interview. You must have thought, "Oh, this is this this is not going to this is not going to go well." Mm, I would don't, I don't know. Up, I would say that, but it ends up going pretty well. I, would, I don't know. I would say this isn't going to go well. What it was telling me is that this guy's playing a game, you know, and it was pretty evident to me that he obviously doesn't believe that his home is heaven. But it just kind of my intuition and my instinct was telling me like this is like one of the guys that used to come into 
the mental hospital where I worked and would just malinger and fake symptoms for some secondary gain. And that's within my initial interactions with this guy is like, that's exactly what this guy is doing. What do you think that was the most important part of that interview? Was there a moment where you thought that's big? Was it a lie? Was it a manipulation? I think the whole thing, just how we, how we, played it and we were able to show that this was all a manipulation. I think that was the biggest point of the interview is that, you know, he made admissions, right? God delivered her to him. They were sealed in marriage. He, God provided for him while they traveled throughout the land. But more importantly is like you look at the whole scope of everything that happened during that interview and all of the things that he did to just maintain control while he's got an agent and a detective pretty blistering interview and he's just maintaining control throughout I mean, if he were truly mentally ill, he would have lost it you know, three questions in. So I think that is the most important thing for me is that it was used to show that this guy was competent so he could ultimately be prosecuted. Special Agent Jeff Ross with the FBI Salt Lake City Division in studio with us today on the 20th anniversary of Elizabeth Smart being found alive. It was actually yesterday, but the investigation began the moment. She was found into the two people who had held her captive for those nine months. And you do a lot of work you have for a lot of years for the FBI protecting kids. Um, Share with us some advice um, that parents can use today, uh, starting today, on how to protect kids. And a lot of times we don't think of the biggest threat as being somebody entering the home, for example, is what happened with Elizabeth Smart. But online threats, Jeff. Right. In the Elizabeth Smart case, I mean – he was he had been hired to come work at the home after the family had met him downtown Salt Lake preaching. Um, you know, it's it's you know, doing your due diligence to try and do background checks on the folks that come into your house. I think is is important, um, and it's it's rare that I work cases like this. Um, you know, we work missing children cases all the time. I mean, most of the cases that I work involve the online sexual exploitation of children because they may not, uh, the parents might not be hiring someone to come into the house, but they've given their kid a tablet. They've given their kid a cell phone. They've given that kid unfettered access to the internet through gaming platforms and through all the different social media things. And it's inviting people into their home that way. And so safety tips in regards to what we tell parents is, you know, monitor what your kids are doing on gaming platforms. Monitor what your kids are doing on social media. Make sure that you're, if you're going to allow your child to have a social media platform where they can post stuff, that they're honest about their age because the internet service providers like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all of them, if you have a profile that honestly lists your age, they'll put parental controls in place. Most kids, they just post that they're 18 or 19 and all those things are taken away. But parents, we encourage them to, you know, if you're going to allow your kid to have an Instagram account, you better find out what Instagram is, have an account yourself, Snapchat account, whatever. And there's millions of apps that are out there and the trends change as far as what what apps the kids are swinging to. But one of the scariest things for me recently is, you know, obviously I've been working this violations since kids were accessing the internet through dial-up internet connections on a desktop computer that was in the Mm -hmm. kitchen or something. Now, you know, then it moved to mobile where kids had cell phones, kids had tablets, kids had access to Wi-Fi. And then there's the apps that they use. But the scariest thing in the past year are these uh, virtual reality headsets like uh, the uh, Facebook Meta or Oculus. Um, 
that give you access to it. Most parents think it's a gaming platform, but you can still gain access to the same apps. You can still gain access to the same um, social media platforms. And I've we've been involved in four missing child cases probably in the past year and a half where the abuser or the offender has made contact with the victim initially through or eventually through one of these Oculus headsets. And I think most parents just think it's, you know, a place where you can play virtual reality games. And it's just another, it's just another portal to the internet. I have never thought about that. We have an Oculus in my house. I've never thought of it being used like that. Sure. I mean, you just ruined everything for my kids and I love you for it. That's great. It's amazing. That's my typical Monday. You're you're not going to believe the the restrictions we're going to have on that kids. Honestly, uh, I can think of four cases in Utah in the past year and a half where the abuser has gained access to a child. And when I say I'm, I'm talking about people coming from different states, picking a child up and moving them somewhere else uh, and contact. Yeah, exactly. Con- yes. Contact was made or maintained via the virtual reality devices. Well, Special Agent Jeff Ross, thank you for taking us down this fascinating it's memory lane uh it was a story probably the 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 story that i will never forget it impacted me so much it was early on in my career in news mm-hmm. and it was one of the most uh, incredible stories i i've ever followed uh and been a part of so thank you for for taking us down the uh yeah. Memories I, before of this. we let you go, Jeff, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I, when I worked with you at the FBI, okay. I called you to my office and I said, my daughter wants an Instagram and she's 13 years old. What do I do? And you <laughs> said, well, let her have one, but you better monitor it. Sure. Monitor it closely. And I did. And we did not. And we did not have any issues at all. Sure. And she allowed me to monitor it to her to a T. I, uh, I, Tell parents that it's not just a conversation that you have one time. It's a topic of conversation in my house that is. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Has has happened throughout my kids all growing up. My last my last kid turns 18 today, so I've got all adults now, but uh <laughs> So your work's done. You're good. Yeah, Don't yeah worry right. About it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Time to sell the house and move. <laughs> <laughs> Special agent Jeff Ross of the FBI. Thanks so much You're for welcome. giving us some. Vindigenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. And this story is actually um, locally impacting a, a lot of tech businesses, uh, but the Silicon Valley Bank failure in California. Wow, it, it came out of the blue for me. I don't know, Dave, if if you were paying attention to the banking sector early last week and saw the bank run coming, but wowee, that happened You didn't see that? Embarrassing. (laughs) No, I didn't see this. Of course not. Um, In a moment, we're going to speak to the president uh, and CEO of, uh, is it Fractional Marketing? 
Yeah, that, Dave, the David Politis Company. The David Politis Company. You know a lot about the tech industry. You've been involved um, in the marketing of it and publicity of it, investor relations for 35 years. I just want to refresh real quickly for our listeners, David and Dave, what went south so quickly with uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, over in California, uh, the effects of which are being felt ac- across the world and including Utah. Um, it happened le- last week. There was a run on the bank when word you'd mentioned earlier got out over Twitter that things weren't looking so hot for this bank. It had tied up a lot of its inve- in excuse me its uh, customer deposits in treasury bonds. As the tech industry started to wobble over the course of the last several weeks in terms of layoffs and cutbacks, um, the people who had money in the bank wanted to withdraw it. And they didn't have enough liquid cash on hand, so they had to start selling some of these treasury bonds that they purchased a couple of years ago at very low rates. Well, unfortunately for them, for for the bank, the rates on treasury bonds have gone up. So why would I want to buy a treasury bond from you, Dave, at 1% when I can buy one from some other guy at 5%? Well, treasury bonds are supposed to be the long game, right? That's correct. Sit, sit on them, let them do their thing. Uh, but when you do have this run on banks, and this is a problem with all banks, right? It's not just a treasury bond thing. If if all your investors, if all your depositors come and they want to cash out, I don't, I can't think of a bank, no matter how they're invested, that can sustain that. I think there's a really interesting thing here to remind your listeners about. If they remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. And there is this run on the savings and loan. George Bailey explains to his clients, his customers, your money's not here. Your money's in this house and in that house and in this business and in that business. And so that allocation of actual money on hand versus the money that's loaned out is something that every bank, every financial institution, every credit union has to deal with all the time. And one of the ways that you do that is most banks have what's called a chief risk officer or something like that. Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a chief risk officer for over 10 months in 2022. And so who was watching out there? Nobody apparently for Silicon Valley Bank. That's where things went sideways. What's important for your listeners to to know though, Silicon Valley Bank served a very important role in doing what classic entrepreneurs and inventors do. They find a hole in the marketplace, something that's not being fulfilled, a need, a pain, and they filled it. If you were a software entrepreneur back in the 1980s, 1970s, you could not get a loan because it was software. Where's the assets? Where's the land I can sell? Where's the building I can sell? Where's the, mm. the factory I can sell? It's all ones and zeros in software. And these two guys down in Silicon Valley said, you know what? I'll bet we can come up with a way to value software and loan money against it. That's how Silicon Valley Bank got started. And so as a result, where did these tech entrepreneurs put a lot of their money? In Silicon Valley Bank because then they could get loan against their assets and they got it. They understood them. And it grew to be the 16th largest bank in the United States and served all the tech community, including Utah, very, very well 
for 40 plus years. So David Politis, uh, he's worked in the tech industry for 35 years, marketing, publicity, investor relations, in studio with us right now as we uh, watch the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Let's talk about the tech sector in Utah. How are they being impacted? And do you expect that uh, they'll be seeing funds, um, which the president promised today, that anybody who is a customer there will have access to funds starting today? Well, they will. And so what was announced yesterday is the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank and the U.S. Treasury Department and the FDIC. That's the organization that insures your deposits up to $250,000. They got together under the direction, apparently, of the Biden administration, the White House, and said, tell you what, we're going to make any deposit in Silicon Valley Bank available on Monday. And that was not the rule. So they have bent the rules in this case for right now. So any customer, any depositor of Silicon Valley Bank has access to their funds this very second, like literally today. That includes every tech company, every life science company in Utah. And so all the hair on fire on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it's done. The money's available. Now, are there other concerns out there in the banking industry? There are. But today, no, not anymore. If I'm banking with Silicon Valley, I can just – why would I leave my money there? Well, I don't – well, first of all, Silicon Valley Bank is dead. Yeah. And so when the California banking regulators stepped in on Friday and said, you're done – they assigned the FDIC as the receiver. So they took over running all of the assets, all the operations of what had been Silicon Valley Bank. They formed a new bank, DNIB of Santa Clarica. It means some long, stupid thing, but that took over. And they said, as per the rules, anybody with deposits of under $250,000, your money will be available on Monday. If you have more than two fifty, dollars some will be available by the end of the week. But some of your money might be tied up for up to six months. Okay. Okay. So that's the standard way it happens. The brouhaha, uh-uh, not anymore. That money is available oidia, today. So. So going forward, David, what, if you if if there is a tech company um, who is putting all of their eggs in one basket in one bank. What would your recommendation be? Would it be to diversify? Well, first of all, yes. It's a bad business practice to have all of your eggs in one basket, period. Right. If you're a marketing agency, a PR agency, and all you do is serve one industry, if that industry goes in the toilet, you're really at risk. You can go out of business fast. And so diversify. Most business planners, consultants would sell you 15 20% of your business should be in a particular industry or sector. Anything above 20% is considered risky, right? So from a standpoint of where should you put your money so you have liquid access to it, quick access, the rule is still $250,000. Do I think that rule should change? I think it should. I think it's too low today. Yeah. Okay. I think it's – I don't know if it's three fifty. I don't know if it's half right. a million dollars, but it should be higher. Low it today, today's times, yeah. Given, you know, so I think that should change. But let's be serious. The vast majority of households in America live paycheck to paycheck. And so I think of what 
smart money guy, Dave Ramsey, has said for decades, which is you should have at least $1,000 in cash on hand at your home. That you, If you need it in an emergency, you can go out and you can buy this thing, pay for this thing, whatever. I think that number is too low also. I think it's probably 2000 2500 But that's the first thing I would tell your listeners. Put it, Have a couple thousand dollars set aside in cash somewhere in your home or someplace you can get access to it. And if you have over $250,000, should you have it on one bank? No, you should not. Not very smart. Well, we appreciate you Great taking advice. the time and joining us. David Politis, president and CEO of the David Politis Company. Uh, thank you for your time. Which leads thank us, you. Uh, walks us straight up to our next conversation that Dave and I are going to have with our listeners. Um, if you were swept up in this and your employer told you, uh, we don't have the funds available to pay you this week, would you be okay? Let's have that discussion. Special coverage of the top national story. Utah Governor Spencer Cox weighing in on the SVB uh, collapse, the bank in California, along with um, our senators, Senator Mitt Romney, as well as Senator Mike Lee this morning uh, during um, a live discussion, Dave. Yeah, I read in the New York Times, they questioned whether the entire banking system might be at risk. And I think that's ultimately what we are asking here in Utah is, okay, I understand if there's a Silicon Valley bank in California, there's another one in New York, but what happens to me and what's going on with my bank? I think a lot of us are that way. Adam Small joins us right now. And Adam, you said uh, Senator Mitt Romney kind of spoke to this. Yeah, he, he kind of spoke to – I actually liked one thing he said. He's like, you know, when in moments of crisis, he'll say like, you know, politicians will come out and start using it as like to kind of elevate their platform. But he'll – he came out and said like that's very ill will right now. But all I'll say is like, you know, there's a lot of people worried right now and that – but he ultimately said the banking system he believes is safe. I just don't think we need to worry about the stability of our banking system or the stability of our uh, – the companies and individuals who have – uh, uh, their deposits in in federally uh, uh, regulated banks. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Is that uh, this this whole summit that Silicon Slopes put on this morning? Is that everyone that spoke, including Senator Romney, said like you know he, he said like I don't know when this is going to calm down, but he's like I'm sure it will. It's just that there's a lot of it's just uncertainty at this point. Yeah, we have the Utah Bankers Association uh, lined up. They're joining the show at 11:05, so we'll ask them. Uh, more information about um, how many businesses could potentially be impacted here in Utah, which is something that the governor also brought up during uh, today's summit. And especially the payroll piece, that's really important to us. We knew that hundreds of businesses were impacted, and that means thousands and thousands of, of employees would have been impacted and, and could have been devastating to, to our state. But perhaps some good news came this morning when President Biden assured the nation uh, that the FDIC would be ensuring that $250,000, that limit, would be available immediately. In fact, they're going to blow the ceiling off the limit. They're going to go, um, they're going to make everybody whole who had deposits in that bank. Yeah, this was an important uh, thing to hear from the president early on this morning. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. I think ultimately those were the only words that people wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, they understand. Investors understand. 
Sometimes investments go bad. You take a bath. Yeah, you take you lose it and you can lose it all. I think speaking to the the folks like you and me that deposit our paychecks into a bank, we we have a fair expectation that we will always have access to that money. Mm-hmm. I started thinking about those folks that spent the weekend freaked out not knowing if they were going to be able to be paid. It was, we didn't know until this morning for sure what the Fed's plan was. I heard some different things over the weekend. It sounded like, oh, they're just going to keep it at that $250,000 cap. Well, President Biden revealed this morning, no, we're going to put all of the money back, whatever you had deposited. So it got me thinking, could you, could you, could you do it? Would you be okay if the company dialed you up this week and said, oh, by the way, on Thursday, you know when your um, mortgage payment is set to come out and your insurance payment is locked and loaded, ready to withdraw from your account, would you be okay? No. No, I, not not even close. I pay every bill through my bank. It's either automatic uh, bill pay, withdrawals. We, if The few times we write checks, it's all from the same bank. Yeah. So if that bank loses its ability... To, to cover those funds? You have, recover- you, yeah, I think a lot of people have all their eggs in one bank. Yeah, I don't, I don't have, ca- I don't have you know, not, thousands you- of dollars in cash lying around <laughs> that I could just stuff in an envelope and ship it off to the gas company. Well, this is the first time we've laughed all day. <laughs> finally. <laughs> Remember last week when we were yeah, finally talking about how much we spend? 63500 per year, the average American spends. Just keep a roof over your head to keep your car running, to keep all of that all of that stuff going, your health care. Um, we basically, it breaks down to $178 a day. We were talking about that on Thursday on the show. And I, it, this entire collapse this weekend and all of the fallout and the, and the customers that were fearful that they weren't going to get their money back and the small business owners that weren't sure what to do, I, it, I literally was boiling this story down to that $178 we all spend on average per day and wondering what I could do to start cutting a little bit here and a little bit there so I can start an emergency fund, not only in the bank that I have it in, which I've had since you and I've done that. We did the right on, you know, we went right on the money and we did the, you know, emergency fund and the emergency savings and everything a couple of years ago. But do you think it's time to start putting that money into a different bank? I, I don't, th- I've had a couple banks and we, we even have a, we have a bank and we have a credit union that, that we use. It, it's clumsy. I know. It's, it's very clumsy. Cause I'm like, are we, can we pay it out of this account or that account and keeping track? But we so, just put, put a little stash of money over here that you didn't have to touch. You just didn't have to touch. While the system, if something were to happen, works itself out. I should or never. just roll the dice and hope it never no, happens to you. Debbie, let's be honest. Let's be very, very honest. We should never have to worry about our bank. We should never have to worry about the money we deposit into the bank having access, instant access to those funds. I just think it's inexcusable to to really betray the trust of of folks like me and you that have deposited our, our money, our life savings, our monthly paychecks into these banks. We have to have it, and it has to be safe. And not only deposited, 
Automatically deposit. Automatic, exactly. <laughs> Direct deposit. Oh, goodness. Straight ahead, the Utah Banking Association. Uh, are they stepping in studio with us or are they on the phone? Calling in? I'm trying to figure it out. They're on the phone. We're going to talk gonna ask to somebody. Them. Yeah, we're going to talk to them. Is that $250,000 limit enough for FDIC insurance? Tracking a development in the developing story that we've been tracking all morning, the ripple effect now being felt throughout the economy in regards to the two bank failures that we saw in three days. Mortgage rates are dropping, and this isn't just a little bit of a drop. Um, dropped to 6.57%, according to CNBC. I just pulled up this story. Uh, down from 6.76% on Friday. So if you locked into a mortgage on Friday at 6.76% and you didn't wait till today on a $500,000 home, that's an additional $128 in your payment in less than one week in just a matter of a couple of days. I'm reading that the story makes it sound as though this could continue to be a trend with mortgage rates, which, my goodness, that could spark more buying again. It could bring buyers back into the market. This is wild. This is fascinating. You said it dropped about a quarter point, mm-hmm. and you're saving a little over $100 a month on your, your right, house payment. Right. Well, to put that in perspective, over the last year, our mortgage rates have jumped up three percentage points. You're talking about a quarter point savings. We are seeing three full points year over year. Howard Headley, Utah Bankers Association, live on the line with us this morning. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Are you seeing this in the in the mortgage uh, in the mortgage industry right now? We're just we're talking about the rates dropping. I didn't expect that to be uh, part of the ripple effect of what happened to these two banks over the weekend. I'm not sure how connected that is. Yeah. It, it, that those markets operate; they they go up and down, and as you can tell, they've gone up more than they've gone down in the last yeah. year. But right. um, I'm not sure what what connection those have to but, to but, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank issues. But we do know that Utah businesses have some connection to SVB in terms of the, particularly the tech sector. What are you hearing from our our local businesses, or what do you know about that connection, Howard? Yeah, that that is an important connection. Silicon Valley Bank is a bank most people haven't heard of, but it was really involved in in early um, you know venture companies, tech companies, early stage tech companies, getting them off the ground. And all the innovation in that area, it was a bank that was really tuned into their needs and, and, and how to serve those needs. And so among that group of people, and as you know, Silicon Slopes and all the tech companies we have in Utah, a lot of them relied on that bank uh, for a lot of services. So when last week, when the, when the bank went down, which was totally unexpected, it was a healthy bank, it, it, it was managing through some interest rate issues, but... Um, nothing that they couldn't manage through, but there was a you know the reaction among a handful of the depositors. This was just a classic bank run. I mean, there's a lot of people running around over the weekend and this morning trying to figure out okay, getting into the weeds of banking, how do banks work, and what's happening. And this was pretty straight up, simple issue of a bank run. This is just people taking billions of dollars out of the bank in a very short amount of time on one day last week. 
Um, and you know, that, that it's, it's pretty simple that there's not a lot of, you know, science to it. It, it, it just, uh, that, that's what happened. And it's really unfortunate because these are the same folks that benefited from Silicon Valley Bank serving that community. These are folks from that very same community turning around and, and, and killing the bank and for really no, no good reason. Um, and it, it, it's, it was disappointing. This morning, as we were listening to President Biden, he said, uh, this bank has been mismanaged. We're firing everybody. We're taking over. He vows that there are going to be new bank regulations and new rules. But again, I, I look at this and I look at how they invested and they invested in uh, bonds largely. I thought it seemed like they were they were being conservative. They weren't taking wild swings. What bank rule can President Biden put in place that can prevent something like this from happening again? Is there? Well, there's political narratives on both sides of this, Dave, you know, and we'll have to just, we have to live through those, you know, that's just inevitable with any issue that gets raised. People go off on one side and say it's about this and on the other side say it's about that. But you're, you're exactly right that this bank was not, you know, on, on the edge of anything. It was really, you know, kind of there were some issues, yes, and if you talk to different bankers, they'll look at that and say, well, I would have done this differently, I would have done that differently. But they were managing through an issue with their capital. Uh, they had a plan. It was a, a reasonable plan, and they were on their way to resolving it. They had a handful of really wealthy uh, depositors that sent out word on Thursday to pull your money out of the bank, and as soon as that happens, the bank is not viable. And I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know what president Biden is thinking. Um, you know, that's, that's the next shoot, you know, to, to drop for us. Is now we get to see a, a flood of new proposals. And again, those will be attached to, I'm sure ongoing narratives. Everybody just wanted to do something in the banking area. will now use this as an excuse to try to do it, but this was just a bank run and you don't need to Utah, our banks are, are as strong as ever. Our economy, you know, has been doing well. And, and it's, you know, that helps the banks and the banks help the economy do that. Uh, we're the sixth largest banking state in the country. Many people don't know that. And we're in a good position to help all these companies that might have been impacted by, you know, Silicon Valley's challenges over the weekend. But it looks like, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC has stepped up and those companies in the short run are going to be taken care of. And then in the long run, as they find new banking relationships, they'll have a lot of folks to, to choose from that can step forward and help them. Um, and, and so it looks like, you know, any crisis has been averted. I, I just feel like people need to recognize that this is just a classic bank run. It's not a matter that we need to dive in and, and do any kind of wholesale revisions of bank laws or regulations. Howard, before we let you go, Howard Headley with the Utah Bankers Association. There's a lot of people questioning that $250,000 limit uh, with the FDIC insurance. Now the president kind of blew that cap out of the water and it's going to make depositors whole for no matter how much they had in, in that account. But in today's day and age, particularly with private businesses and companies that, you know, maybe can't even make payroll with $250,000 as a cap. Does the FDIC limit, in your view, need to be raised? 
So the FTSC limit at $250,000 is meant to help you and me, yeah. right. Um it, It's meant to help the average person. And and there are ways in which a business can, can you know, there's reciprocal deposits. There's just all kinds of ways to, to use that $250,000 insurance coverage to expand it over, you know, a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million. I mean, you, you just have to ask the question. Silicon Valley Bank was just very different. Silicon Valley Bank was dealing with these, you know, early stage tech companies. And in fact, they, they basically said, you, you know, you have to keep your, if, you, if we're going to serve you, you have to keep your deposits here. And so there were some issues there. Uh, my, my guess is that some of those issues will be addressed in terms of concentrations. Um, you know, what bank, you know, a bank can serve, you know, serving that narrow group of people. Uh, and and the amount of the deposits of the bank that were uninsured, meaning they had fewer deposits, but they were huge deposits, mm-hmm. and that kind of created facilitated this run on the bank. So I'm sure that we'll we'll discuss more about those in the future. But the average bank, the normal bank, the ones that you and I deal with every day, they're way more diversified, and they don't have those issues. So like I say, I don't see that this justifies wholesale changes in banking laws. But of course, people on the right and the left will call for that because it supports their narrative right now. But I, I mean, we're mostly concerned about, you know, individual people and let them know that banks are safe and strong and you got a ton of options in Utah. It's a fortunate place to be. And um, the issues surrounding this particular bank are very unique and Happy to talk more about them if anybody's really interested, but the system works well for you and I and for the majority of, of, of individuals and businesses out there. So Howard we're going to keep pushing forward. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Uh, you're with Utah's Bankers Association. Uh, thanks for Dave and the An organization called Envision Utah does these uh, really intriguing uh, studies, surveys, and we're going to dive into uh, the latest one right now where they ask, for example, uh, what is the most important issue to you or topic to you and your family? Well, in this case, public education comes out ahead of water resources and inflation. I can see that, right? Because even even if you don't have kids in school, you are probably a product of public school. You've been there. You've had a teacher that you loved. You've had a teacher that you hated. You had a, a a math class that you were just terrible in, but an English teacher inspired you through you know something. So yeah, I think we're all a, we're so attached to education, uh, so it doesn't surprise me that it's at the top of the list. Ari Bruning is CEO of Envision Utah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with you is Jason Brown, the Vice President of Education and Communications with Envision Utah. Good morning to both of you. So let's break down our concerns when it comes to public education. Within that category, it looks like number one is providing better support for teachers. I was thrilled to hear that. But what does that mean? Can you dive into that, Jason? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we were also thrilled to see that because we the, the research is really clear that within a school system, teachers have a bigger impact on student learning and student outcomes than really anything else. They're more important than the curriculum. They're more important than the classroom. Than, uh, so, so we were glad to see that that's where Utahns are focused, that they're thinking about we need to make sure that we have 
uh, teachers in the classroom. And part of that we think is coming from the response to the fact that we're in a teacher shortage. We have uh, too few people going into the profession. We still have nearly half of our teachers leaving the profession within five years. So I think it's, it has Utahns worried and it's where they want to make sure we're putting our energy. What does support for teachers mean? Because I, I know that can come in a million different ways, whether it's more teachers' assistants, tutors available, resources, books, computers, whatever it might be. What do Utahns think of when they think about supporting teachers? Well, I think they think about all of those things, but I think top of the list has to do with teacher pay. Um, as, as we survey Utahns, that seems to be their number one concern, and as we've uh, – We've even surveyed college students and asked them, why aren't you going into teaching? And that, that seems to be the reason. They, they're concerned about the low pay. Is there a sense or is there a number out there? Because I hear this. I Believe me, I've heard the teacher pay thing for years and years, but I, I have no idea what the number is. Is it 60, 65,000? What's the starting pay? What's the top pay? Because if I'm trying to prepare myself for a tax increase, because that's how it's going to get paid is through taxes, right? What's the number? Does so, anyone have any idea what that number is? We do, actually. So we brought together a, a group of folks from education uh, policymakers and the business community, and we posed that question to them. What is, what is the number? We looked at other similar professions and how much they made. And uh, this was in 2019, so there's been some inflation since then. But the, the number was 60000 starting, and then by retirement, around 110000 so um, we're, we've made a lot of progress since then as well. The legislature has funded uh, increased teacher salaries several years in a row, and we're we're making great progress. Are we at the hundred and ten thousand when they approach retirement yet? Though that doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like we're even within reach of that, Jason. No, no, we're we've made a lot of progress on the front end, and and we are uh, getting really close to around sixty thousand on average starting. Now again, that was twenty nineteen's number. Twenty twenty three's number is probably a little bit higher. It needs to be uh, something a little different, but. Uh, but on the back end, uh, we still have a long way to go to make sure teaching is a rewarding and enticing career throughout a, a teacher's uh, career life. Okay. Uh, teacher pay, obviously, top of the list, it, not surprising either. What else stood out to you? What else, when it comes to education, really you know, made you say, oh, that, that kind of surprised me? Uh, well, one of the things we saw near the top of the list was safety within schools was a high concern for Utahns. And, and another thing we saw was Utahns uh, view early childhood education as, as very important, whether that's in the home before you get to school or preschool or extended day kindergarten, they view it as important. One of these um, things that popped up on your survey when you asked was talking to babies to help their brains grow uh, ready to learn, and I used to. I did that for my youngest two, my middle child and my youngest, because that became a thing that was talked about uh, for parents to try in the '90s. And I just happened to latch on to a study or something like that, so I did it for my youngest two. And I think their oldest sister would say, "I'm glad you did, Mom, because they ended up being." Pretty doggone smart. I don't know if that has anything to do with all the Mozart I had them listen to and all the reading I did to them in the womb. But why is that? Why is that important? Well, there's a lot of research that shows that not just in the womb, but after the first uh, three or four years of life is when most of the physical brain actually grows. 
and it kind of grows in response to what you feed it. And so if you feed it a lot of talking and a lot of loving back and forth interactions and a lot of engagement, it really builds a strong sort of mm. infrastructure that, that sets them up for learning, even for things like better self-control uh, you know, throughout their life. Is there something we don't care about when it comes to education? That is a great question. So, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, controversial issues take up a lot of airtime when we talk about education, um, you know, with, whether it's books in schools and so forth. And, and so we surveyed Utahns and we found out that, indeed, those are controversial. There's a big divide we saw. But when we asked how important those issues are compared to, say, teachers and so forth, they come out towards the bottom of the list. So they're, they are things that we can definitely should be continuing to talk about because they're controversial, but they probably shouldn't be what, dominating what, the conversation. What's ahead of that? Because that does really dominate the conversation, not only in Utah, but, but in other states. Yeah. So what's ahead of that are the things we've talked about. So teachers, uh, safety in schools, uh, early childhood education, and so forth. Hmm. I, I don't think people... When you hear that as a headline, I don't think you realize that there's a lot of other things that people care more about when that does dominate the conversation. Do we have an appetite or is there a sense that we have an appetite to uh, fund teacher raises or uh, additional support services? You know, we've been tracking this over a number of years, and uh, we went from, you know, a time, um, what are we, six or seven years ago, when a really small majority of Utahns were really interested in more education funding. And I think over the last few years, particularly, people have sort of gotten a sense that we need to do more to support our teachers, to support our education systems. And we're, uh, in our polling, we're finding uh, three out of four Utahns, 74%, are saying that they would be willing to uh, pay for more education funding if they knew it was going to go to the right things, to things like supporting teachers, to things like good early education, to things like school safety and things like that. That's a, that's an important part of it because, again, I've got kids in, in school uh, right, right in the heart of it. I don't know where my money goes. And if you are going to raise my property taxes or whatever, it, it's hard for me to say yes if I don't see the tangible connection. And I think so often – it is, we just – all the money goes there, and I don't know exactly where it goes. Uh, how do you address that? Is there any sense of, of how we create some accountability or where the taxpayer can say, oh, I know that my money is going here? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the first thing I'll say is when you look at any district's budget, uh, anywhere from two-thirds to three-fourths of the budget is going towards student instruction. And, and as a state, we're, we're around two-thirds as a, as a whole of our education spending is going towards student instruction, which usually means predominantly teachers but also uh, aides or, or supports or other, other things like that. Uh, there's kind of a misconception that the money is being wasted on administration. We have uh, some of the lowest administrative costs in the country relative to our, to our budget. So uh, we do pretty well so far in Utah at, at putting the money where people want it and putting it in student uh, instruction and student learning. Um, but, you know, that, that information is available. There's a, the auditor at the state has, has a website where people can look at their, their district or the state as a whole. And every district also, also has to make uh, their budgets public. And you can go in and see where the money's going. Ari Bruning, CEO of Envision Utah. Jason Brown, Vice President of Education and Communications for Envision Utah. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's great to be back in person <laughs> and seeing you both in studio. Appreciate it. Uh, public education, number one issue ahead of water resources. And as I just said, moments before we came on the air is we, we need water to live and survive, yet we still put our kids ahead of that. 
look forward to continuing to take a deep dive into what you guys found in this survey. Dave and Dujanovic. We've been talking so much all show long about the collapse of these two banks, the one in New York and the one in California. Uh, great coverage there. We're going to return to our coverage in 10 minutes, Dave. Uh, News Nation calling the show on the latest from the national landscape on what's happening with those two banks. But we've decided to dive into something that is um, it, actually this survey, I think, impacts and the results of it impact a lot of Utah families. Uh, according to a recent survey, uh, a brokerage firm called Haybay. Oh, excuse me, Haybay. <laughs> Haybay. Home, home bay. Home bay. Hey, You're thinking about your weekend. Hey, bay. <laughs> How you doing? You, we needed to have some fun on this show. We really needed to shake it up. Thanks, thanks, Deb. <laughs> hey, bay. Home bay. Seventy-five percent of folks who moved last year in the United States regret it. Okay, this is <laughs> this is outstanding because Debbie just moved. I did. <laughs> Almost a year ago. Okay, don't answer it yet, but I want to know if you regret moving. But I think this is this is very, 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 very interesting. Seventy five percent of Americans regret Mm -hmm. moving last year, right? Eighty percent of workers (laughs) who quit in the Great Resignation regret it. All of you grass is always greener folk that are like, oh, if I could just change jobs, if I could just have a new home. Well, these are things you can't keep your receipt for either and just return to the store with the next yeah. day, right? Yeah. I mean, if like, I'll just take it home and try it on and see if it works. No, once you're in that contract. You're out. <laughs> yeah. Either way, whether you're in a contract to buy a home or sell a home or a contract to get a new job or you just quit your other one, yeah, you, you can't take it back. Okay, so what are the biggest reasons why people regretted I was surprised moving. by this. So they broke it down into, we won't have time to, uh, 10 different categories. We won't have time to go into all of them, I'm sure, because of the way you and I work on this show. <laughs> uh, first, we'll reason, get through three. We'll get through, yeah, one if we're lucky. I wish I, w- I, wish I moved into a bigger place, 20%. Ooh. Yeah. They bought Ooh, that's it. a surprise. Yeah. So the work? downsizers are like, mm-hmm. mm, maybe I shouldn't have downsized as much. Look at it this way more space, less time. Less space, more time. So try to flip your thought process around on that. If you did buy a place and you're like, oh, I wish it was bigger, you get time back because you don't have all those rooms to clean. All right. Team time, tiny home. Number two, uh, I miss my old home. Nostalgia. Yeah. I wish I would have gotten rid of more stuff. Well, that's just more runs to the landfill. Trust me, they knew me by name. They knew me by name out there at hey, the Deb. Salt Lake County landfill. Um, it was too much of a hassle. That oh. is a hundred percent. You got it. Brutal. You got you. I was, this is. You're going to give up six months of your life to do it right. That's what I learned. I made the decision at the beginning of the, uh, last year. And I really wasn't settled until the end of June. And even that, I wasn't settled. I still had stuff in boxes. So it was a good six months of my life. You forget so much what you put up with, right? You, When you have to move, well, maybe you have to replace the carpet or replace the shingles or right. so uh, the you have to end, patch the walls. Right, getting, ready to, getting re- the house ready to show, even in a, in a crazy seller's market, you still... 
Right. You don't want somebody to walk in and have the fireplace hanging down. Yeah. You want the fireplace upright and still glued to the studs, you know? Picky, picky. Right? Well, and don't even get me started on moving. Like the actual physically moving of the piano. For example, yeah. there is basically no amount of money that makes moving a piano worth it. Uh, I moved a piano once. Actually, I've moved twice. a thousand pianos, yeah, I, and I hate all of you for asking me to come. Hey, do you think you could help me move a piano? One reason why, I'll, why I will never own a piano again is because you think, oh, well, i got to move that someday. It was too expensive is another reason people regretted moving. So Dave and I talked There's about a lot this of survey. Fees, yeah, right? a survey that came out that 75% of Americans who moved last year regret it. It was too expensive. Yeah, a lot of fees. Um, it's not a, It's not just the the closing costs, mm-hmm. the realtor fees. It's the patchwork on the in the fresh coat of paint. Well, I had to hire movers because you were unavailable mysteriously. You and your oh, I'm super busy this weekend, Deb. Sorry, totally Ooh. unavailable. That I didn't. Well, it was still a thousand dollars to do that, but I couldn't. I couldn't carry all that stuff over in my little sedan. Yeah, you got out for a thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. You must have thrown away a lot of stuff. I did. I gave away a lot of stuff. It negatively impacted a relationship. 17% said they regretted it because you're in a family fight. Right? It's stressful. Yeah, no question. Have you thought about this? Yes. At all? You guys yeah. are almost empty nesters, but not really. I mean, you got a ways, but you're close enough that you could maybe downsize. We could totally downsize. I have five rooms, and, and I have, I'll have one kid by this time next year. Like oh. one one kid living at home. So what do I need five rooms for? Right? I mean, it was a great house, but I I don't have use for five rooms. I need that space reallocated. So yeah, we've thought about moving, but for all these reasons that you just listed, I I, I think we'll probably just stay. Really? I think you're doing it the right way. You just way. listed but like fifty things of why not to move. I don't have regrets. I'm you not like the move. I'm part of the twenty five percent who are thrilled that they moved. Yes. I I went from a house to a town home. I will, but here's I think here's the secret sauce. You ready for this? Okay. It's what you and Shar are doing. You're talking about it now. You're not making a decision one weekend and be like, "Hey, honey, let's move. Want to start packing <laughs> stuff up and see if we can find a place." I had been thinking about it as you know because you were in on the conversations that were going on in my head. What do I do? Should I? Should I not? And I did it for a purpose. I was downsizing. I wanted less stuff and more time. I'd had a yard for 30 years that I had maintained like you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, A house with only four bedrooms, Dave, and three bathrooms. Still, housework, right? My list every day when I left here included running home and doing something to the yard or snow blowing the driveway or, you know, you know, cleaning a bedroom or cleaning a bathroom, it's not like that anymore. It's super amazing and super weird all at the same time because I grew used to having so much on my plate to just maintain my home. And all that stuff is gone now. Do you miss all the memories, though, of the old house? No, because I packed them up in one little box and I took them with me. I don't miss the memories. Because you make new ones, Dave. You make new memories. I've got... 
Dave's moving in a year. Dave and Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. We not only had one, but two bank failures over the weekend. If you missed the news, uh, that Silicon Valley Bank in California, that happened late last week. Kind of like, like that, all out of the blue. And then Signature Bank in New York as well. Both are kind of niche, niche, niche banks. I don't know how you say it. Uh, SVB catered to tech companies, which, of course, Utah has a ton of tech startup companies here. And a signature bank in New York catered to, I want to say the uber, uber rich, uh, particularly in the, like the real estate industry. And signature bank was more connected to crypto. They were kind of one of the first banks that started accepting crypto as deposits back in 2018, I think it was. So that was a little, a slight, all interconnected, but slightly different reason why, why, why they each failed. We talked to Utah Bankers Association, and they said, "Sure, there there were some areas where these these banks had made some mistakes, maybe were mismanaged, but ultimately they said, in their opinion, this was just a good old fashioned bank run. Way too many people came out and said, I want my money back.'" And no bank, no bank, there's not a bank on the planet that can handle a run. They just don't carry that much cash where a bunch of people just want to take out all the money. And the Biden administration, we heard this morning, it, I think they are putting a lot of blame on the bank itself. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. And as someone that uses a bank and has direct deposit and all of that stuff, that kind of reassurance is great. But, again, the Biden administration has, is putting a lot of blame on the banks. And they've promised and vowed that there will be new bank rules. Blake Berman from News Nation, Chief Washington Correspondent. Uh, good morning, Blake. I'm sure it's uh, afternoon there in, in D.C. now. Yeah. But um, do you know Do you know anything if people are already getting their deposits back uh, after the president made that announcement this morning? Well, you know, I've been, of course, extremely closely followed if you had money inside of Silicon Valley Bank and especially uh, the Signature Bank as well. Um, you know, the, the, the question over the weekend going into today was, what would the Federal Reserve do? What would the Treasury Department do and what would the White House do uh, as it relates to the uninsured deposits, which is those over $250,000? When you put your money in a bank, you, you expect it to be there. And we've all known that, that there's this, you know, insurance, the FDIC insurance that protects that. The, the question is, though, what about over 250000 And uh, the the government, I know the Fed's technically, I guess not the government, but the, the you know White House and the Fed came together, Treasury Department, and said, look, we're going to make sure that all deposits are protected, um, whether they've actually happened at this moment in time. I mean, I'm standing here at the White House and, and, and can't you know speak to small businesses and depositors across the country, um, but they had said that uh, you know that this money would be available starting today. Uh, you know, a pretty big decision that they had on their hands. You know, the, the senior Treasury officials were asked about this yesterday. Um, did, what was a precedent just set? You know, if there's another bank, uh, a third bank, a fourth bank, a sixth bank, a 12th bank, a, a 40th bank, whatever it might be at some point down the line that fails. And obviously nobody wants to see that happen. 
is, is every single depositor above 250000 going to be um, made whole? And then what does that mean for the federal government? Is there potentially hundreds of billions and trillions in liability here? Um, you know, the White House is saying, and we heard this from the president today, that, um, that this will be covered by the banks. They pay fees, assessments, uh, you know, into the FDIC so that if anything happens um, along the lines of this, uh, that there's money there. The Treasury Department said yesterday they've got over $100 billion in FDIC money, uh, insurance money, and that that is sufficient. But it also asks the question, you know, if, if there are more of these down the line, um, is the government exposed and potentially on the hook? It was a very complicated, um, you know, decision as to what to do. But at the end of the day, the decision was made, was made, let's make all of these businesses and let's make all of these depositors whole because, you know, these businesses, if they wouldn't have been made whole, um, would have caved in, in many cases. You make a great point, and, and you brought this up saying, okay, for a couple of banks or a handful of banks, $100 billion in FDIC money might be able to cover this. But if we start seeing this become a trend in banks, and there's a dozen or two dozen or hundreds of banks, there's, I'm sure there's thousands of tens of thousands of banks across this country, you know, that, that hundred billion doesn't stretch very far. Yeah. And you see it today in the index that tracks the uh, small and regional banks, it's down 11% at last check. One of the, the fears is, uh, might there be more runs on the smaller regional banks? Um, you know, there are the systemically important banks that too big to fail banks. You, you know, we, we all know them, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, et cetera, on down the line. And the question that some people are waking up and having to deal with is, if you individually or you own a business that has more than $250,000 in it, are you moving your money to some of the biggest banks in the country um, because you believe that, you know, Bank of America is too big to fail or Wells Fargo is too big to fail or J.P. Morgan is too, too big to fail? And, and that's part of the pressure uh, that is being exerted right now, at least in the eyes of Wall Street, uh, on some of these you know, smaller and regional banks. And that's why we're seeing some of these stocks get absolutely hammered today. Um, as I was looking at them earlier today, I mean, there were some some of the smaller bank stocks, you know, down as, as much as 65% or so. Blake Berman is the chief Washington correspondent for News Nation. He's live with us at the White House right now talking about the SVB failure and also the, the signature bank uh, failure in New York. I have a feeling, though, Blake, had the had the president not taken the action he had today and telling depositors at those two banks that their money will be covered and they'll be made whole, that there would have been a bank run. Kind of like one of those situations where if you if you don't do something, the situation becomes worse. If you do this, then maybe it becomes worse down the line because we run out of money for bank. I mean, it's just it's it's a wild situation. If they hadn't, to be taken, in. This, if they hadn't taken this step today, the reality is there would have been dozens into hundreds into potentially thousands of businesses across this country uh, that would have been shut down, that would not have been able to make payroll, that would not have been able to proceed forward. When you talk about Silicon Valley Bank specifically, it is a massive play. I mean, a lot of people are, are learn about Silicon Valley Bank on Thursday and Friday. It is a massive, massive player in the tech and startup space. Um, you know, when you think about startups, um, some of the greatest you know, companies that we know of started as one, two, three, five, 12 person companies that are now worth hundreds of billions, in some cases, trillions of dollars, right? And Silicon Valley Bank is one of the big players in that space that, that lends money to startups, gives them credit facilities, debt facilities, invests in some of these startups. 
And so they have their money in Silicon Valley Bank for many reasons. But if you can't access that money and you've got a business, you're a startup and, you know, you've got five employees, 50 employees, 500 employees, whatever it might be, but you can't access that money. It's no different than being an individual and you can't access your money. Well, how are you going to pay for the things that you need to pay for? So that was the flip side of it um, was making sure. And this is what the administration had talked about that businesses could proceed and could make payroll because if not, they would have been shut down in, in many cases. Now, one of the other questions is, well, is that a bailout, right? Um, and we had seen back in, in 2008 with the TARP bailout and the biggest banks that had been bailed out, there's really not an appetite here in Washington to bail out banks. But what we heard from um, you know the president today and the point that the administration has been making is if you had stock in Silicon Valley Bank, wiped out. Yep. You had any sort and of the bailout equity. discussion, Blake, is one that we will have in the days ahead. Is this a bailout? Blake Berman, um, chief Washington correspondent from News Nation, days in the days ahead for the time. Insurance discussion. Next, great advice in three minutes. Nope. On that next, ask that question next. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.